Loving Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you are the God who created marriage. You are love. You are not just the God of love, but you are love. And Lord, as we talk about relationships this week, Father, I want to first pause and thank you for our marriage, for how you have kept us and through the years in our uptimes and downtimes and our valleys as well as our mountaintops. You have kept us and you brought us to this place where today we can not only celebrate your grace and your mercy and your strength, but we can celebrate the beautiful gift of marriage. Be with us, Lord, this afternoon and also during the week as we grow together, as we smile, as we learn things together, as we have times where the moments will be very serious and other moments where they will bring a smile. We ask for your spirit to guide and for all your purposes to be accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I want to begin with some things to smile about because when we did this seminar in, um, in Crystal, did it say Crystal Mountain? There's some, I like to begin with something to make you smile because we tend to be very, very serious. But if you've been married any length of time, you know that uh, there's a lot of humor in relationships. There are many days. My wife and I, we laugh every day. We either laugh with each other, we either laugh at each other, or we laugh at other people. Uh, we have church members that make us laugh. We find reasons to smile every day. We have grown through trial. We have grown through challenges. We've grown through moments of celebration. We've learned to cry together. We've learned to argue together. We've learned to pray together. We've learned to grow together. We have learned when the times come when you want to throw in the towel, we have learned to go to our knees. We have learned that when the enemy comes at us with all the fury and tries to separate us, that we serve a God that can still keep us together. And so marriage is not uh, marriage is not something that happens automatically. But marriage is like a job that every morning you show up to work. Can I get an amen? And I know there are some of you that have been married a long time. Some of you have just been married. We met, a, we met a couple just recently that was just married. They have their first child. And my wife and I, sometimes we see young married couples, and we say this, they haven't got a clue. <laughs> they don't know. But God created marriage like he created the Sabbath to be a symbol of the relationship between us and him. But I want to begin with some things that will make you smile because uh, through the years I thought that laughter is medicine. And listen, listen to some of these dialogues, something to make you smile, and then we'll get really deadly serious in a moment. But here's one. A wife to husband. This is a statement. Wife to husband. I'm staying in this marriage because I believe that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Husband to the wife, the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned off due to budget cuts. <laughs> Different ways you see marriage. Here's another one. You may have heard about this person before, a person by the name of Mae West. Does anybody remember that name? She says, if marriage is so great, why do they call it an institution? Well, my wife and I have, my wife and I have been in the institution of marriage for 35 years. Can anybody else praise the Lord for that? Now, we're going to work through some of, the some of the difficult things also. Here's another one. A lady by the name of Helen Rowland said, In Bible times, sacrifices were made at the altar, a practice that still continues. Now, that's not, that's not untrue. That is not untrue. Because when you are married, there are certain things you've got to sacrifice. 
that is in you. And when you learn the blessing of sacrificing the things that can sacrifice your marriage, then you learn the principles of growth. When I met my wife, she was not crazy about basketball, and I was not crazy about malls. Now I like malls, and she likes basketball. Uh, we have learned to play games together. We travel together. We have worked at three companies together, same companies. We traveled for two years in a row, every day in the same room, on the same bus, in the same location, and we still travel together. And I've wondered to myself how many marriages are strong enough for husband and wife to share the same space every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're going to talk about how to do that. Another one that came to my mind, and you've heard this guy, he'll be the last one, because I know he's a very famous person. Rodney Dangerfield said, and just forget the H, he said, my wife and I were happy for 20 years, then we met. <laughs> my wife and I are still happy today. Can you say amen, somebody? We're going to talk about what it means to be happy in marriage, but let's start with the definition of marriage. One, marriage is a divine revelation in human vessels. Marriage is a divine revelation in human vessels. If God didn't think that marriage was a good thing, he would not have created marriage. Marriage is a divine revelation. In other words, the marriage is intended to show the relationship between God and his church, between the husband and the wife. The Apostle Paul communicates it this way. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Notice what the Bible says. Let's read this together. Ladies, we'll start with you. Ladies, are you ready? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Continuing, for the husband is the head of the wife, also as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So who is the head of the church? Who's the head of the wife? The husband. That's the scriptures. And what that means when you study the Bible, it doesn't mean that Eve was taken from Adam's foot and he represents the head or he's got his feet on top of her. The Lord took Eve from the rib of Adam. For Adam and Eve to be side by side in their relationship with God. But when sin entered the world, Genesis chapter 3 says that the desire of the wife shall be for her husband. And so the Lord established a principle that will continue through years to show the relationship between God and the church, between the church and our Heavenly Father. And that is the marriage. That is the what? That is the marriage. Look at a few more things. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 24. Therefore, just as Christ is subject, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in how many things? In everything. And that means when a husband, and this is something I want to begin with, when a husband represents the godly priest that the Lord intends for the husband to be, then it makes it a lot easier for the wife to be subject to the husband in everything. And my wife and I have learned those principles very well. As a pastor, my schedule gets very, very busy sometimes. And there are days when I come home and I really am tired from 
studying or visiting or preaching or doing programs as it is at 3ABN, and I'm just exhausted. And my wife in the evening would say, honey, let's read our Bible together or let's do a devotional together. So what we've learned through the years is when I'm weak, she's strong. When she's weak, I'm strong. And what we have learned is the marriage is not one in control of the other, but both allowing Christ to be in control of them. Look at a few more principles that the Bible makes very clear. Marriage is not only a, refle- marriage is not only a, a divine revelation in human vessels, but marriage is a reflection of divine love through human vessels. A reflection of divine love, how? Through human vessels. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit unto your own husbands. The love that flows from the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband can only be done when Christ is in the heart of both of them. Here's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Now, I want the husbands to read this. Are you ready, men? Are you ready, men? Okay, here we go. Let me hear the men say it. Together, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself for her. And now verse 28. So husbands ought to do what? Love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You know what that means? That means husbands have to learn to love their wives as much as they love themselves. And when they learn that the love that God has given to them is not a love of power or control, but of mutual respect, then and only then will the husband be able to love his wife as Christ has loved the church. My wife and I, after 35 years, we're still growing together. Anybody else? Anybody still growing in their relationship? And you can grow because marriage is not a tree that's been cut down, but marriage is a tree that has been planted. When that tree is planted on principles that are governed by the scriptures, my wife and I still read books together. Right now we're reading a book called The Four Seasons of Marriage. And we've learned that you're never too old to learn how to do something better. You're never too old. My wife and I had a conversation the other day, and I'll be saying that term quite a bit, my wife, because we're talking about wives and husbands. The other day, uh, Angie made an appointment to go to the doctor. And I'm driving to the doctor, showing how sometimes, even after many, many years, you still are not on the same page. And I'm driving to the doctor, and I'm getting near to the highway in southern Illinois, and she says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the doctor. She said, well, why are you going this way? I said, well, isn't that the doctor we're going to? She said, no, we're going to another doctor. I said, I didn't know that. She said, I told you that. And I said, you didn't tell me that. Well, her, we're going to talk about communication also during this week. How even after all these years, you still get to the place sometimes where you don't know what the other one is saying. Amen to that? We have those moments. You have a conversation. And there was once we were sitting, standing in the kitchen talking. And after about six minutes, I said, what are you talking about? She said, what are you talking about? And we discovered after all this time, we still, after all these years, still have conversations sometimes where we're on opposite pages. So it's never 
you're never too old or you've not been married too long that you could still learn something new. Marriage is also a relationship of mutual esteem between human vessels. Here's what the Bible says about that mutual esteem. And what that mutual esteem means, you exalt each other because you are concerned about the things that make a difference in your wife's life or the things that make a difference in your husband's life. You're not living to please yourself. You're not living for your own self-interest, but you're living for the interest of your wife and for the blessings of your relationship. Let's look at this in Scripture. And we're going to break this down in simple terms as we get further into the seminar. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. Look at what the Bible says. It says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What two things do you see there? Somebody tell me. We're going to communicate here. What two things do you see? What does the wife want? Say it again. What does the husband want? The wife wants love. The husband wants what? Respect. But let me say something as a husband. Come on, husbands. Husbands need love too. Amen? And wives need respect also. It's not a one-way thing, but it's talking about the mutual aspect of what it means to esteem each other. If we respect and love each other, then we will never have to ask for love and ask for respect. And I've seen through the years in some of our churches and some of our leadership, I've seen instances where people play out their lives in public. And I'll be talking about some of those things during the week. When your relationship is growing and when God is leading your relationship, you'll respect each other not just in private, but you'll also respect each other in public. It makes a huge difference when the husband is respected in public and the wife is loved and respected in public. It establishes you as a person and a couple of credibility and love and strength. And only then can your relationship be an example to others. And my wife and I have learned how to do that, how to love and respect each other in a public setting as well as in a private setting. Let's look at the fourth thing the Bible says about Marriage. Marriage imparts, what's that next word? Sanctification to human vessels. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he broadens this beautifully. And notice what he says. He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, what this means is, there are some people that we know that are married to spouses that are not Christians or that are not, are, that are not Adventist. And in many of the cases, it takes many, many years for that wife or husband to either join the church or become a Christian or at best to become a Seventh-day Adventist. But until that happens, the Bible says the sanctifying relationship that the husband may have with the Lord or the wife may have with the Lord will impart sanctification to the other spouse that is not in a relationship with God. So they're bringing the blessing into the household. But there's no greater blessing than when both of you are on the same page. Amen? When you're both on the same page, the blessing is greatest. But here's the example I use in marriage. This is, this is what I call the marriage triangle. 
Where is God at this, at, in this triangle? Where is God? He's at the top of the triangle. The husband is to the bottom left. The wife is to the bottom right. Here's the principles of marriage. As you both, as you both move towards God, what happens to the relationship? Somebody tell me. It gets closer. So if the husband has a relationship with God and the wife has a relationship with the Lord, you get closer together. My wife has her own relationship with God. I wish, honey, come on up here. Come and join me. Because I'm, I'm making all these references and I want to have her share because I, I, I see her own spiritual life. I, I understand her own spiritual relationship with God. And while we were planning to do some things tomorrow, I want, to talk, I want you to talk about your own devotional life. Because if only one is involved in a relationship with Christ, then one is lacking in that relationship with Christ. What kind of devotional life do you have? Tell us about that. Why would you do that? <laughs> well, I, I always speak with the Lord. I talk to him as a, with a friend. And I pray and talk to him. But you know what? I pray for my husband. That's, to me, that is so important, ladies, to pray for your husbands. Um, there are times at night when he's fast asleep. I put my hand on him, and I pray, Lord, anoint this man. He doesn't have to be a minister. He's your husband. He is truly, well, he's your minister, right? The priest of your home. So I do that. I pray. Um, something happened the other day. Oh, we, Share with us. Yeah, but I want you to tell the rest of the story. We were, we were packing to come here, to come to Michigan, and we had a busy week. We just finished the 3ABN camp meeting. I was exhausted. And my mind was a Wednesday night prayer meeting. I just got through Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, then Friday came, and the Sabbath is coming in, and we had so much packing still to get done. And I was exhausted. But... I was physically exhausted, but my wife saw something else. Talk about that. Um, he was just unusually, this was what, around 3.30 Friday, this past Friday. He was unusually tired. We sat down by the dining table, and he says, Angie, I'm tired. I'm going to go lay down. I said, okay. So he went in the recline and laid down. I'm like, this is not like him. This is Friday. We have so much to do because we, gotta, we, we have so much to do to prepare, pack everything. Sermon, yeah, you have to preach Sabbath. You teach, he teaches his new believers class every Sabbath. I mean, just, we just have so much to do. And yeah, you had the lawn to cut. Come talk with me. We had the lawn to cut. Yeah, I had the lawn to do. My, my list was pack, cut the lawn before the sunset, finish up your sermon, get ready for Sabbath school, and then after church, we'll leave to go to Michigan. And I was maybe one-tenth ready in my packing, but I was exhausted in my mind. And tell, tell them what the Lord revealed to you. Okay. I went into the room. He was there sleeping, and I'm like, this is not like him. And you in the living room on the recliner sleeping. And I had the TV on, news going. And I went into the room, and I knelt down by the bed. And I said, Lord... Help my husband. This is not like him. Please, Father, help him. Help him to get up and do something. And I said, Lord, he has so much to do. And the Lord said, turn off the TV. 
and put Christian music on. So I said, okay. And I turned, I got up, but it was, it was a very intimate prayer. I can't remember the words exactly. It was a very intimate prayer with me and the Lord. And so I got up off my knees and I went, turned off the TV, put my music on, my wonderful Christian music on, and it was playing. And I was like, okay, John, wake up. He wouldn't wake up. But I'm like, okay, Lord, you told me what to do. I did it. He was out cold. I peeked at him. He was out cold, fast asleep. I sense that there was a spiritual warfare going on because he's doing unclean spirits at 11 o'clock here um, every morning. And every time he's going to do that subject, there's always a spiritual warfare. So I just didn't know. I just kept on. I was doing cleaning, doing stuff. Then the phone rings loud, and I ran and answered it. Hello? Hello? There was no one. No one. I looked at the number, and I saw a number. I'm like, hello? Hello? No one. John got up. He woke up, and I said, he said, who is that? I said, no one. The just phone just rang. He got up with such energy. He was ready to work. He was just going, going. <laughs> right, honey? I got up like somebody had set the chair on fire. I jumped up and I put my cap, I mean, I had my cap on, I put my, I said, who is she? She said, nobody. I ran to the, didn't run, but I got to the, to the dining area where I had my luggage out. And I just started packing. I just started packing. I, I finished packing so quickly. And then I said, you know, I'm done packing. I got to go cut the lawn. I went out and cut the lawn. And so many things happened so quickly. And then when I was all done, after I finished the lawn, came in and had plenty of time before the Sabbath started, we sat down and had dinner as the Sabbath was coming in. She said to me, let me tell you what happened. She said, the Lord revealed to me that there was a spiritual oppression over you. And I knew the devil was trying, he was battling with you. Because it was a stupor. I just felt that lethargic tiredness. And it doesn't happen to me on Fridays. But I said, honey, we're going to Michigan to do Unclean Spirits, which we do every day at 11 o'clock, the whole occult and music industry presentation. And then on marriage, and I said, the devil wants me to go tired, unprepared, and just exhausted. And you know what I've learned, which my wife and I learn, is usually after he gets you to, to the point where you are beyond any help to catch up, then all of a sudden he removes the oppression and you realize how unprepared you really are. And we learned that. And she said, you know what? I prayed for you. And I said, I wondered where all that energy came from. It was an answer to prayer. But the reason I had her come and share that is because if my wife didn't have her own relationship, she has her own Bible studies. But we study together. We, in the morning, we either read a devotional together or we read our Bibles. In the evening, we are now in the book of Second Kings together. We read the Spirit of Prophecy books with it, so the Bible comes alive. So we're in, we finished Patriots and Prophets, and we're going through the Bible. We started with Genesis. Read Genesis. If you want to start your marriage right, really good in the Word, start with Genesis and read Patriots and Prophets with it, and it goes along with it. And we read the whole thing. And then now we're up to um, Prophets and Kings. But um, after he got up, I said a silent prayer. I said, thank you, Lord, for waking him up. Thank you. 
always thank the Lord. It's always important to thank him for what he has done. Amen. Thank you, honey. And so the reason I talked about this is because this triangle is very true in our relationship. We read our Bible together through one year. We, we decided to read our Bibles together through for an entire year. You know how long it took us to do it? Eight years. You know why? Because we didn't want to be water skiers. We wanted to deeply dive in God's Word together. And I've discovered something. The, pe the couple that prays together, studies together, worships together, eats dinner together, have fun together, goes to the mall together on Super Bowl Sunday, <laughs> and uh, has an icy together or an ice cream every now and then if they want to, and learns how to bring happiness to each other's heart. We've learned in so many ways what it means. And there are still times in, in the intervals of our growing together, there were still times that the Lord still had to reveal to us that there was still something in us that needed to be removed to strengthen our relationship. So the reason why this triangle is so vitally important is when you are in tune with God, and even when you're out of tune with God, He'll tap you on your shoulder and let you know, excuse my finger here, I was maybe, look, because you can see it very easily. It's not, it's not an apparatus or a style or anything. It's healing from a broken knuckle. But um, when you are in tune with God, He'll let you know at particular intervals in your relationship as a husband and wife where you need to put self aside and where you need an adjustment in your relationship. For example, here's one of the reasons why it's so significantly important. Uh, Fox News did this survey, and uh, I updated it a little later, later on. I'll give you some more up-to-date research. But as of 2004, statistically, 50% of first marriages will end in divorce. And you know what? That statistic hasn't really changed that much. 50% of first marriages will end in divorce. And I wish I could say the Christian church is uh, exempt, but it's not. That means marriage, period. And for various reasons. We're going to talk about those reasons during the seminar. But once again, and it says, in 1970, the median age for marriage was 21 for women and 23 for men. And uh, women uh, physiologically mature quicker than men. Sometimes it takes longer for men to stop playing and become serious. I had help from my wife's brother at, at 24 years old when he said, you've been dating her for nine years what are you going to do with that relationship? Take it to the next level, or he wanted me to make a decision. And now I look back, and I thought that was a good decision. Look at another statistic. 2000, as of 2000, the median age for marriage was 25 for women and 27 for men. And by age, here's another one, by age 35, this is an amazing statistic. About 74% of men and women have been married, have been married. But let's keep going. Don't change the screen yet. By age 65, about 95% of men and women have been married. In other words, if you're going to get married, you increase your odds as you get older. But as you get older, one of the reasons why it's not good to wait too long to get married is because the longer you get used to yourself, the harder it is to get used to somebody else. The longer, and, and women have said it this way, we know a lady now that um, her husband deceased many years, and we oft often joke with her, she's at our church, 
She's highly energetic. We say, when are you going to get married? She said, at this point in my life, there's no man that would want to live with me. My life is too organized. <laughs> She's gotten used to herself. Marriage really means a breaking down, a sacrificing of some parts of your life for the happiness of somebody else's life. And look at this graph, very interesting graph. I thought this was something that was very eye-opening. It pointed out that in the 1950s, the average age for marriage was 20 years old. But by 2017, the average age for marriage was 27. And when you look at our society today, one of the reasons why the age continues going up and up and up and up is because in the 1950s, there were less women working outside the home. In 2017, there are far more women working outside the home, the professional life. The college graduates are far greater among women now than they were among women in the 1950s. The women were the stay-at-home moms. There's an article I'm going to look for this week. My wife and I found it a number of years, I think about a year ago. It was talking about uh, how to make a husband happy in the 1950s compared to how to make your husband happy in the 2000s. It was a hilarious article. It was amazing, and I want to read that. I want to find that article and share that with you. It talked about how times have changed. For example, and I'll just kind of give you a hint. It says, when the husband comes home, this is the 1950s, when the husband come home, comes home, wife, make sure that your hair is beautifully done and you've changed into a nice, lovely dress. I mean, how many women do that today? Really, come on. How many women fix their hair when their husbands are coming home today? She said, and they said, tidy up the children, make sure they're nice and washed, and they're sitting at the front door when the husband come in and ready to say, good evening, Dad. How many kids do that today? The world has changed tremendously. But the article is hilarious, and it's talking about how times have changed tremendously from the 1950s to 2018. Look at another statistic. This is from McKinley Irvin. They are a very uh, significant uh, family law firm uh, throughout the country uh, that is in the United States. Some of the, some of the recent statistics they have, it says 41%, and thank the Lord is going down some. This is more recent statistics, and you'll find out why in just a moment. They said 41% of first marriages end in divorce. But what they also point out is less people are getting married. More people are living together than getting married. More people are having children out of wedlock and, and buying homes together before they get married. So he says because of that, you find less marriages and the percentages of divorces are going down because less people are getting married. And this is a, this is a statistic as of 2017. Also, 60% of second marriages end in divorce. Further, 73% of third marriages end in divorce. Notice how the percentages go up. And why does this happen? Why is it that the percentages of divorce increase as you have more than one marriage? And I call this the trailer truck syndrome. When you're married, you first of all have the liability of bringing yourself into the relationship. The way you were raised, the family of origin, your attitudes towards money, Everything about your past and your experiences are brought into the relationship. And so before you even include another individual, you already have many attitudes and positions and opinions about how to spend money, what the roles in marriage are all about, 
So you've already brought that in. But now, when the marriage fails and a person goes into a second marriage, what they do at the beginning of the marriage, which is something that I would recommend that people not do, is before they begin to appreciate what the other person brings to the table, they tend to default by examining the new person in their relationship, not to see the qualities that they bring to the table, but to find out what about that person would remind them about their first marriage. So they begin to examine. They said, well, how is this second spouse like the first spouse that I divorced? And they, so they, began to ex- they begin to examine the negative things. They look for all the things of the reminder of the past rather than begin to appreciate the things of the present. But as you go to the third marriage, before they even deal with the issues that caused the first marriage to fall apart and the second marriage falls apart, they take that baggage into the third marriage. And that's why the percentages of divorce, 73% of the third marriages end in divorce. But McKinley also points out something else, and look at this statistic. In America, there is one divorce approximately, this is startling, every 36 seconds. That's nearly 2,400 divorces per day. 16,800 divorces per week and 876,000 divorces a year. And McKinley Irving deals with family law. So they know this is, a, this is a statistic based on the families that they deal with from the East Coast to the West Coast. Now, more than ever before, with that statistic in mind, more than ever before, and we're going to talk about this this week. I'm laying some foundation today. We're going to talk about the ways and the means whereby we could strengthen our relationship how we can get back to a solid foundation, and the things that we can do to strengthen our marriages. Amen? Here's another statistic, and I really like this one. Well, I'll get to the one I like in just a moment. The average length of a marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. So after the seven-year itch, the marriage usually falls into the place where either they resolve to, either they resolve to tackle the challenging issues or they resolve to end the relationship. And he is saying statistically, the length of marriage that ends in divorce is usually eight years. And he goes on. People wait an average of three years after a divorce to remarry if they remarry at all. Going on, the average age of couples going through their first divorce is 30 years old. That's the average age. Now, depending on when they get married, one of, the, one of the challenges of that, and they point out in their later information, that this is often true among couples that get married when they're very, very young. When, they get, when they're 18 years old, when they're 19 years old, and this is often true about couples that get married before they're 25, because there's something that happens physiologically that ensures a better marriage when you wait till about 25. And you know what that is? Your center of reasoning is fully developed when you're 24 and 25 years old. That's why some some college students, they'll go to college and they'll they'll go straight from high school to college. They'll take their courses and whatever major they want to pursue. And when they graduate college, they'll begin their career. And then a a year later, they'll end their career and go into a completely different field. Why? Because their center of reasoning has not been fully developed. Therefore, they're changeable. 
So the younger a person gets married, the higher the risk is that they may divorce. And that is by the age 30. We're going to end this part and go to the blessings of marriage in just a moment. 69.6% of custodial mothers receive a support award, while only 29.6% of custodial fathers receive a support award. That means when people are divorced, it's very unlikely for the husband to receive anything. It's more likely for the wife to get support. That will neither vary from state to state. That's not a great statistic that we're going to build our seminar on. But let's talk about some of the blessings of marriage. Are you ready for the blessings? Can you say amen? Look at some of the blessings. Let's start with men. Let's start with men. This is of June 10th, 2014, Men's Health Journal. Science points to a very easy way to be happier. Have less stress. Reduce your risk of dying from cancer and heart disease and potentially live longer. And the answer is simply get married. Now, you guys should have jumped all over that one. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Come on, somebody, say amen. I know you've come for a lot of other counsel, but to me, marriage is a beautiful thing. And why is it beautiful? Because God made it. And anything that God makes, when we trust in the Lord to strengthen it, it can become more and more beautiful as the days go by. Continuing, research overwhelmingly shows that married men, and this is powerful, you have some guys that are walking around campus that are single, and now I know why they're not all there. I didn't say that. Forgive me, Lord. Research overwhelmingly shows that married men are both mentally and physically healthier than single guys. As a result, they tend to live longer. Ladies, thank you for helping us live longer. Amen? Now, I know my wife and I saw this. When my wife doesn't cook, I eat horribly. Any men do that? Are we good enough to admit that? Now, when I was single, I cooked, but I didn't cook the way she cooks. And she even said to me just a few days ago, she says, now, why don't you cook? I said, honey, when I was single, I didn't cook the things that we eat as Adventists. I cooked more for the world. When I was converted, I said, I'm not going to mess with good cooking, and my wife cooks very good. Matter of fact, I need to, make, I need, I need to just insert this right here. I said this to a single young man who, who told me that his girlfriend doesn't cook. And I said to him, if you're going to marry her, I would recommend you buy her a cookbook before you get married. Amen? Because all that, I love you, I, I adore you, I want to lean on your shoulder, that can only go but so far when you're starving. Am I right? Now, you know how to cook. I, I, I watch, my wife and I watch HG Channel. We like the house channel. You know, we don't watch all that garbage on television. We like the house channel. And on so many occasions, the wife would say, I love that. This is a beautiful kitchen. And the husband would say, if you would use it. And I know so many women that say, I don't cook. He does. Well, whatever happened to the old time saying that a, man, a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. It does matter. You see, when all those days where you don't, 
you know, when you first get married, come on, let's get, most of you, when you first get married, you know, you never see the outside. But after a while, you want to go, you want to find out what's outside. And the first thing your wife says, let's go to a restaurant. And I was raised in a West Indian home where they believed in, you know, cooking. The pots were always on the stove. Mama would be cooking. Papa would be cooking. I know how to cook. My wife knows how to cook. Her mother cooks. Her brothers cook. For the most part, they all know how to find their way around the kitchen. But so many couples today, we go to their homes and we say, wow, their kitchen is immaculate. Because they don't cook. And they, they want these beautiful kitchens, but they don't cook. And I said, I, 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 I said to my wife, how did they get the burner to look like it was just never used? Because it was never used. <laughs> And I think we ought to get back to the days when the man's, a oh, way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Amen, husbands? Yeah, but be careful. Say that ever so lightly and so nicely. It's good. We go out every now and then. We don't have any children, just to get that out of the way. We don't have any children. We have, the Lord never blessed us with children. He had another plan for our lives. Every now and then we say, Lord, we could have had one. But when we get to heaven, the Lord is, is going to say to us, you don't realize what I saved you from. Because in 2018, you know, we have nieces and nephews, and every now and then my sister would call us, and her sister would call, and her brother would call, and, oh, my kids. And that's when we say, thank you, Lord, we don't have any children. But every now and then we'd see a little kid walk by, and we'd see, you know, if we had a daughter, she'd look like her. If we had a son, uh, he'd look like him. But then we know God knows best. Isn't that right? So God always makes up, because he sent my wife and I now to about 61, 62 countries. We could have never done that if we had children. We've moved 13 times. We could have never done that if we had children. But the one thing that children do teach you, and we've been learning this, we've had to readjust sometimes because, you know, when you're single, uh, we had family visitors just recently, and it was so much fun to have other people in our house just to talk to somebody else. We love talking to each other. But, you know, after a while, you kind of cover every topic. It's like, honey, what can we talk about tonight? Oh, I don't know. We already talked about that. Not really. We don't do that. But we always find fun things to talk about. But after a while, you want to talk to somebody else. And so what we do is we go visit people. We go on vacation. We go to New York. But we go together. Amen? And uh, we were on American Airlines once. And we're sitting down, they were serving the meals, and it so happened, we traveled so much, we had miles, and they upgraded us to first class. And we were sitting there, and we're laughing our heads off. And the flight attendant came by and said, you guys must be newlyweds. And we said, we've been married 31 years. I don't believe that being married long means that your joy should die. Amen? Matter of fact, when we ask women, generally in a survey, what would you look for in a man? You know, I've discovered that the first, the second, or the third thing they say is we want a man with a sense of humor. I've never heard women say, I want a guy that really has a nice job. Because I've seen houses where people have really good jobs. The wife has a car. The house is immaculate. They have a maid. They vacuum the rug. All the rug hairs are in the same direction. All the plates are lined up like it's in the palace of France. Everything looks perfect. And they walk around like two people that were just resurrected. And the second resurrection. 
unhappy? How was your day? Well, how was your day? So stoic and cold. But my wife and I are not like that. When you come over our house, you can see we live there. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, if we go to some people's house, it looks like a museum, not ours. We live in our house. For you OCD people, hold on. I had a guy recently said to me, he says, you know, I don't know where anything is in my house. The moment I put it down, my wife puts it where it's supposed to be, and I don't, I don't know where that is. <laughs> and, I've, and I've recently visited with somebody that's like that. I was at their house, and you know, I got up in the morning, I showered and all, I came back to my room. My bed was all made up. I said, did you make up my bed? No, our maid did. Could you tell me where she put my socks? And there's some people that have that, you know, they have that wealth. They could do that. But my wife and I, we wash, we wash clothes together. She folds them. I fold them. I wash my clothes. She washes her clothes. She washes my clothes. I wash her clothes. We have fun together. I vacuum. She vacuums. I mow the lawn. She wants to mow the lawn, but I'm not letting her get on my John Deere tractor. <laughs> Amen, guys. I got me a professional John Deere tractor. I'm not letting her get on and run into a tree. Oh, no, I'm not going to risk that. But she says, you, you, you let me cut the lawn, and what am I supposed to do? Well, you cook. We still haven't crossed that great divide yet. <laughs> that is not in my notes. I don't know where that came from. But the reality of it is, enjoy your relationship. Breathe together. You lean back and enjoy life together. Because you never know how much life you have together. Look at this. Researchers, oh, I had that one. Didn't I just do that one about mentally and physically? Yeah, that's good. Here's the reason why it works. Genesis 2 and verse 18. Notice this. And the Lord God said, let's read this together. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a what? Helper comparable to him. The King James Version says a help meet. And that doesn't mean help meet the bills. No amens necessary. But a helper comparable. And my wife, I cannot tell you the value. Because she was raised by a compassionate mother. Before her mother was my mother-in-law, her mother was like my mother. I'd come over, she had five sons, three daughters, and she'd cook, and there'd be food in the oven for me. And her, her sons would come home and they say, where's our food? Oh, that's for John right now. I'm making yours later. And so because of the compassion that her mother gave her, I get that compassion. There are times when finances are tight, and my wife says, you know, man, we don't have much groceries. You know what? That's when we get the best meals. My wife's mom taught her how to make the best stuff out of absolutely nothing. Somebody else knows what I'm talking about. See, when, when, when we say there's not enough, not enough in the cabinet, the Lord narrows it down so we know what we're going to have for dinner that night. It's not like we're going to have that, 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 or that. No, we're going to have that. What else? We're going to have that and that. And it's good. And I said, she said, I said, honey, that was really good. She said, well, that's all we had. I said, it tastes good. So we have that wonderful blessing of whether there, are, whether there is a lot or whether there is a little, when there is love in the home, the dinner tastes good. Right? 
let's talk about something very important here. And we're going to, whatever we don't cover today, we'll cover tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And we're going to get to some serious principles and some exciting things too. Let's talk about climate control. Climate control. What is, what is this a picture of? A thermostat. This is, by the way, a very modern one. Because I was raised in a house where if you want the temperature to be warm, you go upstairs and you turn it up manually. In the evening, you turn it down manually. You know how that goes. Those days are long gone. Everything is digital nowadays. You could set your temperature from here, and your house is in, you know, in Kentucky. That's the kind of age we live in. But temperature control, vitally important, which leads me to the first question. What is, what is the temperature in your marriage? Now, this is really important. What is the temperature in your marriage? And the book that we're going through now is called The Four Seasons. We have about 12 minutes remaining. The Four Seasons of Marriage. Let me see that booklet, honey. Pass it to me. And by the way, what's so nice, and this happens all the time in our relationship. Many of the sermons I preach on Sabbath, my wife has contributed to significantly. Because while I'm, while I'm doing my sermon, she's reading. She's either reading the Bible. She'll say, what are you preaching on this Sabbath? And I'll tell her the topic. She opens up the spirit of prophecy, the Bible, and she's reading. I say, oh, that's really good. I'll use that. We work together. So many of the sermons, and before I get to Sabbath and preach the sermon, I've already preached it to her. She's already given me great sermon notes. And the same thing comes when it comes to seminars. Whatever the seminar, she says, let's read on that. So here's a book that we're reading now together. Uh, the Four Seasons of Marriage. Which season of marriage are you in? Gary Chapman, one of the best authors on marriage material. And so when I talk about what is the, what is the climate in your marriage or what is the temperature in your marriage, the answer come down, comes down simply to this. The climate in marriage is set through the window of our experiences. The climate in marriage is set through the window of our experiences. Let's look at some of those experiences that govern the relationship. And I'm going to give you a list, and we're going to go through the week and break this list down together. Look at the list that governs the marriage. Here are all the categories, and as a marriage counselor, these are the categories that we consider most when it comes to determining how strong or how weak a relationship is. Look at this. Here it is on, on the screen. The first one is marriage expectation. The next one is personality issues. Following that is communication. And then after that is, let's say the next one. What is the next one? A little louder. What is it? Conflict resolution. Together after that is what else? Financial management. Next one, leisure activities. Next one, sexual relations. Following that, children and parenting. And then next, what is it? Family and friends. After that, role relations. Then, spiritual beliefs. And then finally, Family of origin. Now, take a good look at this list, because what many of you don't know, and I think it's still on the screen. We'll put it back on the screen, because some people are writing it down. I'll talk while they're writing it down. What many of you don't know is these are 
the 12 areas that governs a marriage. These are the categories that determine the temperature in your relationship. Let me go through the, some of them very quickly, and I'll break them down in, in detail in just a moment. Marital expectation. We'll talk about that. In other words, what does a person expect in the marriage? I'll bring the next slide up. Did you all take a picture of that already? Some people have done that. What is marital expectation is the great question. We're going to go through each of these categories during the week. We're going to also talk about the 10 stressors in marriage. We're going to also talk about the top 10 reasons why relationships fall apart. And then we're going to talk about the steps to conflict resolution. And then we're going to talk about building a strong marriage. Well, let's talk about some of these categories. What is marital expectation? And here's what the answer is. Marital expectation is the internal list of your expectations, wants, values, and what's the last one? Desires. Now, the reason I say internal list is because the husband has one expectation about the marriage and the wife has the other. And where are these expectations often stored? Right in here. Right in the mind. It's very rarely talked about. So, if you went to a restaurant, if you went to a restaurant, whether it's a vegan or a regular, would you walk into the restaurant and sit down at the table and the waiter comes and says, what would you like? And you say to them, you know what I like. Would you do that? You've seen me before, just bring what you know I like. Would you do that? You go to a car dealership. How can we help you today? Well, I'm here for a car. What kind of car? You know what I like. Would you do that? You go to a shoe store. How many pairs of shoes in the shoe store, ladies? Come on, help me out. The guys don't know. How many pairs of shoes in the shoe store? Lots. My wife is a centipede ten times over. I said to her, honey, even if you are a millipede, you still don't have enough legs for your shoes. But that's okay. She's a shoe lady and a purse lady. I'm a bag guy. I love backpacks. That's neither here nor there. Forget that point. But if you walk into a shoe store and you want to buy a pair of shoes and the salesperson comes and says, how can I help you? I want a pair of shoes. Well, how can, what kind of shoes do you want? You know what I like. Would you do that? Come on, give me the answer. Would you do that? One, two, three. Why do we do that in our relationships? One of the reasons why, and we're going to talk about how this affects other areas. One of the reasons why, and look at this next graphic. Marital expectation falls into two categories. Realistic expectations and unrealistic expectations. But neither of those two are known if you expect the other person to be a mind reader. I don't want to ask any questions on that one because sometimes I'd say, how many of you have ever experienced your spouse thinking? Well, let me rephrase that. How many of you... Ha <laughs> How many of your spouses have ever said, you should know? I just said, don't raise your hand. Because I want you guys to go home together. But that's what usually happens. When, when things go awry and they don't work out, after 15 years, you still don't know? 
It's like mind readers. You know, I've learned, and, and this is my safety, and my wife and I, we have fun together in this. After 35 years, if, if your wife says, so what do you think? Guys, here's a safe answer. What do you think? <laughs> because if you disagree, you still don't know? No, my wife doesn't do that. But the point I'm making, and look at the list here. Because some of us are unrealistic in our expectations. Some of us are realistic in our expectations. And the unrealistic expectations are often the things that damage the relationship. Because in both categories, look at this next graphic. Approach to marital expectation. Un read this with me. Are you ready? Here we go. Unless you verbally express what you expect, don't be disappointed if you don't get it. Can I get an amen? And that's usually the problem. People say, you know, he didn't bring me anything back from the ice cream store. Well, did you want an ice cream, honey? Well, isn't it hot for me also? Well, but I was outside, but I like ice cream too. Sometimes we want the, and, and, and guys, I feel for you sometimes, because this guy's laughing his head off. Hold him before he falls. But guys are the victims of this more than ladies. Can I get an amen? Just want to make sure I don't want to see any ladies throwing anything. But guys are often the victims, victims of that because, see, to guys, two guys could be in a car and they could make a wrong turn. And the guy would say, He just made a wrong turn. And he'd say, No problem. I just go around the block and come back. But if you're in the car and you make a wrong turn, your wife says, you don't know where you're going? How many times have you been to church? Well, I just turn around. No, never mind. I don't want to go anyway. I mean, you just messed my evening up. It's like, adjust already. And be careful when you say, honey, relax. We did a marriage, we did a relation, we did a, a program on 3ABN about peace in a relationship, and one of the ladies on 3ABN on our Bible, on our Friday night family worship, she said, nothing stresses me more than when my husband tells me, relax. You know why? You know what they say? I am relaxed. But marital expectation is often a challenge because people don't verbally express what they expect, and they are sorely disappointed when they don't get it. So what's the answer to that? What's the answer? Let's look at that. Here's some of the roadblocks, and I'm going to bring this up very quickly so we could go through that. We have two minutes and 40 seconds, and after I said that, we have less. Here are some of the roadblocks to marital expectation. Let's say then, what's, what's the first one? I thought. What's the next one? You should know. The third one? Isn't it obvious? The fourth one? Can't you tell? And, and, and I don't want to survey on that, but those are the things that often hinder a couple from having smooth communication because one of them or the other says, I thought you'd know by now. I mean, you should know. I mean, isn't it obvious? Uh, can't you tell? So let's end on these eight points. If I can get them in here. If not, we'll do them tomorrow. Are you ready? 
Eight things you have the right to expect in your relationship. And I'll give you the information tomorrow if you don't get it. The first thing is, let's say it together, affection. We'll break that down in detail, what affection really is. The other one is compassion. The third one is respect. The fourth one is consideration. The fifth one is, together, what is it? Time. Number six, what is that? Interest. Are you interested in what interests me? The seventh one is what else? Intimacy. And notice it didn't say sex. It says intimacy. And the eighth one is what else? Generosity. Generosity. Eight things you have the right to expect in your relationship. We're going to break these down in greater detail tomorrow. And there's a ninth one that's not on that list. We're going to talk about what that is. I'm going to hold that out there so that I could have something to talk about tomorrow. Affection, compassion, respect. Consideration, time, interest, intimacy, and generosity. And we will end this evening's session by making it very clear. Unless you verbally express what you expect, don't be disappointed if you don't get it. What's the answer? The key to marital fulfillment, let's say that together, verbally express yourself. We'll wind up on that this afternoon. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. As we've started our time together, we do pray that as we continue to get together on the afternoons that you will give us wisdom and understanding. Lord, we know that we're going to deal with some serious issues a little later in the week and even starting tomorrow. So as we have begun to lay some foundation today, we pray that our great desire is to be all that you will have us to be in our relationship, in our love, in our hearts, in our marriages. And we pray, Lord, that if there's something about us that needs to be placed aside, that you'll give us the willing heart to lay these things down so that the beautiful blessing of marriage can shine forth. And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.